Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Parquet courts went from being stoned and starving to making many critics' top ten lists, including mine. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Brooklyn Rockers' Parquet Courts perform for us live, and then we review an album many people have been excited about, Reflector from Arcade Fire. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That, of course, is the pop singer Katy Perry with her single, Roar. It leads her fourth studio album, Prism, which has just debuted at number one on the Billboard Albums chart. But as our producer Robin Lynn said, Katy Perry climbed the world's smallest mountain. It's number one, but it's leading the worst week for album sales on the Billboard Albums chart since 1991. It sold only 286,000 copies, according to Nielsen SoundScan. In comparison, back in 91, you had acts like U2 with Octung Baby and Garth Brooks with Ropin' the Wind and Nirvana selling, you know, two, three, four, or many times more than that numbers being measured in the millions instead of the hundreds of thousands you know what she may not set the record for the most record sales in a week but she has earned another distinction i can't think of a single album in music history that has been declared a biohazard by a country you got me there (laughs) and that's the distinction earned by uh katie perry's prism the deluxe version so the deluxe version contains this packet of seeds that she's urging her fans to plant. Apparently a daisy is going to grow as a result. Aww. But the uh, Department of Agriculture in Australia says, hey, wait a minute. This could be a weed or a potential pathogen that you are introducing to our country. So every PRISM deluxe version that enters the country is going to be inspected as a potential biohazard risk. I didn't know there were seeds. I thought it was candy and I ate mine. 
That is the great Curtis Mayfield with the song Future Shock. Greg, it seems to me that there is a future shock coming every year out of the Future of Music Summit. You attended it in Washington, D.C. just recently. This is a gathering each year of all sorts of policy wonks, D.C. government people, as well as music industry people, journalists, artists, visionaries, and entrepreneurs. What did you learn this year? Yeah, technology industry, big part of it as well. You know, the numbers are dire. We've been doing, dealing with this for uh, over a decade now. The, the big number that a lot of people were talking about was the 40% decline in the number of professional musicians since 1999, according to the U.S. Department of Labor. That is people who are declaring their profession as musician. So a decline of more than 40%. The other big number that people were talking about, in 2011, 99% of the digital tracks released did not sell as many as a thousand copies. That is a mind-boggling statistic showing how difficult it is to get music out into the marketplace it, and it really, paid for. It really underscores that there's like one percent of artists that are sustaining themselves on recorded music being sold. Copyright is always front and center issue at this conference. What did you learn about that? Well, when you talk about intellectual property, you're talking about music, you're talking about the law being able to deal with uh, matters like how are people going to be compensated for creating intellectual property. The last time this law was revised was in 1976, and uh, Jacqueline Charlesworth of the U.S. Copyright Office had a great line. She said, we're dealing with a law that's about happy days and jukeboxes. (laughs) It's about time we got this law changed. Now, they're starting to hold a series of hearings on reform forming the law. The U.S. House of Representatives is looking at some changes. But Charlesworth pointed out that the law in 76, that process began in the 50s. It took them nearly 20 years to revise copyright law. If that happens again, the music industry might be dead in 20 years if they don't revise it sooner than that. And the last point uh, I thought that was a good one, uh, Tom Silverman, who was the founder of the Mu Music Seminar, which was the big industry gathering of the 90s, was talking about Here we are at the end of the digital download era, basically. That whole 99 cents, I'm going to pay for a download and put it in my iPod era, that's coming to an end. He said, what's our next big revenue stream? We don't have one. He said, we're still so concerned about piracy and about protecting our copyright holdings that we haven't thought about what the next potential revenue stream could be. So a bad scenario for the music industry in 2013. to Sound Opinions, and that's a song called Master of My Craft by Parquet Quartz. It's the opening track on one of my favorite records of the year, Light Up Gold. And so we invited the band to perform at a special live recording of the show at Lincoln Hall in Chicago, presented by Goose Island. Now you might remember hearing the Savages set a couple of months ago. On that same night, in front of a sold-out audience, bass player Sean Yeaton, guitarist Austin Brown, lead guitarist Andrew Savage, and his brother Max on drums, played songs from Light Up Gold and shared their story. As Andrew Savage tells us, it all began in Denton, Texas, where half of the band went to college. 
So we wondered, what does a future rock star major in? My major was actually watercolor <laughs> painting. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I studied philosophy. So you guys were confident you'd have high-paying jobs immediately upon yeah, graduation. Yeah, I knew I could walk in any watercolor store and just... Yeah. <laughs> I dropped out. I gave up early. Philosophy's tough, man. Well, I didn't, no, that wasn't the hard part. It was the algebra. <laughs> you had to have a, a, an algebra course for a... Philo- See, I, yeah. I took philosophy I, courses so I wouldn't have I to take I took that algebra. bad boy three times. Yeah. Third I time's a charm. <laughs> Now, the tidbit I came across, Andrew and Austin, when you guys were at college, was uh, something called the Knights of the Round Turntable. Yeah, that's right. Were you making that up? I mean, that sounds really cool, but explain. It was really cool. It's a club that I started at at the school kind of as a way to meet friends, and it was kind of like a, really kind of like a book club with records. Like actual records? Vinyl records? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so this was... Not metaphysical A, a or book club with... So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those guys would get together and play the record and discuss, we'd, uh, like, yeah, we'd get Fifty together. Shades of Grey or something? What we'd do, the format was we'd get together and we'd listen to a seven-inch and then have a discussion on that, and then we'd listen to a full-length and, and do a talk on that, and then there'd usually be, like, a question of the week or some sort of open discussion that we would do after that. Yeah. Wow. It was really cool. Super nerdy. A- Andrew, what would a typical 45 and a typical question be? Oh, you know, it was pretty democratic and open. It would just really be someone volunteering to bring a record uh, to one of the meetings, and I, you know, it would just be as easy as that. Okay, you got one, yeah, bring it. It was really pretty diverse. You know, anything from pop to, I mean, I contributed a lot of punk. There was a lot of jazz. For one semester, I remember there was kind of like a large, like kind of experimental contingency that was showing up, and you know, questions just kind of like if you could go see any show in the history of music where would you go you know stuff like that you know we, we we've heard a lot about the vinyl revival in the last few years but this was well before turntables and vinyl albums and 45s were back in vogue i mean it's it was it was even hard to find those things at a certain point i imagine no. but you were you were into that stuff for i mean there's a record store in denton at that time for i don't know the true believers it's never really that hard to find it's kind of how i feel uh, were you the only two members of the uh, Knights of the Turntable? Or? No, that would have been... In this group, yeah. That would have been really dull. No, there was, a, there was definitely a core, but, uh, you know, we'd, we'd have some pretty crowded meetings sometimes. I'm thinking there were no women. The, oh, no, there was, like, there a a few. one a few times. Yeah. <laughs> she got scared. Yeah. It was, the, it was, it was cool. It, I mean, the meetings would last for hours. It wasn't, it wasn't like a casual thing. I mean, everybody. Well, that's what we do. Had that college that's experience. What, but yeah. that's what we. I thought we do. were the only geeks yeah, that did right, that. Right. Yeah. Okay. What else is there to talk about besides music? How did this move? Because you now identify as a Williamsburg band, a Brooklyn. No, we don't. I don't never no? done that. No, <laughs> no, we don't. Do you identify as a New York band? Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but not Williamsburg. I don't live in yeah. Williamsburg. I live in Williamsburg, but I'm the only one. For those well, of you not in residence, we're talking about a neighborhood in Brooklyn here. Neighborhood. Yeah. Ever heard of it? Uh. How, how did you guys individually move to New York? I moved kind of, you know, to flee Denton in a way, and I was 23 and just needed a new place to live because that's kind of like when you max out in a college town. And, yeah, just kind of decided, why not? I'll move to New York City, sure. Yeah. I, I like, dropped out around, like, 22 or so, and 
moved to New York. What was the goal to put together a group? It wasn't my goal in moving there, no. I think we've okay. always played in bands and played music and done things like that, so that's kind of always the goal. Yeah, I figured it would happen anyway. Let's hear some of the Knights of the Round turntable, a.k.a. Parquet Courts, performing two songs, Master of My Craft and Borrowed Time, live at Lincoln Hall on Sound Opinions. <laughs>
ring, my thoughts drift to my head from the ceiling. I remember the feeling of the useless existence of the drunk born and listless in this way for something. was Master of My Craft and Borrowed Time, two songs performed by Parquet Courts live on Sound Opinions at Lincoln Hall in Chicago. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with more Parquet Courts, and later we're going to review the new arcade fire, and I'll add a song to the Desert Island Jukebox. I was so, 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 so starving. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that song is the splendidly titled Stoned and Starving by our guest this week, Parquet Courts. The band joined us for a live recording in front of a Chicago audience at Lincoln Hall, presented by Goose Island. And these art punks first put out material on cassette in 2011, catching the ear of the underground. That was followed up with the full-length debut, Light Up Gold, released by the label What's Your Rupture? The album's been garnering critical acclaim ever since its release, making this a band to watch. As we return to the conversation, I asked singer and guitarist Andrew Savage about the group's goals with this album. Really the same as with the first one, American Specialties, just to, you know, record the songs that we knew. American Specialties and Light Up Gold are different because Light Up Gold during that recording is when I feel like we really became the band that we are, and that is because that's when we had been playing pretty serious a lot for about a year live, and so we, at that point, had kind of reached the point where we knew each other's playing styles very well but also we didn't go into well to call it a studio would be a bit grandiose because it was really just a practice space that that was tiny that we recorded the record in but uh we went into there to that place with maybe half the the amount of songs that were on the record and the rest of them we kind of put together as we were recording so and there's always been that kind of energy in the band to kind of you know, fly by the seat of your pants and think on your feet, and it's something that's always been encouraged. And I think, in that regard, this record was a real, a real triumph. Whereas American Specialties, a lot of it was was me, just like kind of recording some ideas, and there were you know a few songs that we all played on, but a lot of songs I would just kind of have them overdub on, and you know, it was kind of formed out later. Whereas Light Up Gold was truly the band's first like solid band effort. It was really quick. The whole record was made in five days total. So, so you it was, was r- great. I don't remember any of it. It was cool. Yeah, I was like hallucinating <laughs> the entire time. Actually, yeah. You were writing and recording. Yeah, we were. We were in like a like a I don't know like twelve by sixteen box for like three days straight almost. <laughs> we were all just miserably maddening. sick afterwards. We were sleeping for just a few hours a night. It was just kind of all the. We could do that weekend because we all had to get off work at the same time, and I don't know, we had other things going it's on. It's winter in New York. It's January. It was you guys all have colds. Like You're passing the cold around, it right? Was winter, yeah. It was but winter. Yeah, I don't know. It, it I don't remember, I guess. I'm, it blows my mind that you were saying that you wrote half the record there because, to me, one of the things that is apparent after you listen to the record multiple times is how well put together the songs seem to be. And it was done in a very short period of time. I'm sure that's probably why you feel that way because the, the all the songs just kind of have that that like I said that kind of um, fly by the seat of your pants kind of energy where we all were not as discriminatory as we usually would be and just like when when we thought that we had a song we just kind of 
let it go and recorded it. So it kind of has that rough quality to it. And that's something that I've learned in doing this band is you can't really labor over things too long. You have to free them and let them go or else they're never going to be, you know, they're never going to be songs. Can you give me an example of a song that was written on the spot? Uh, North Dakota. North Dakota is one of them. All right. Let's, let's, let's just take North Dakota. You wrote this in the recording session. I've written some of these lyrics down, and I'm not going to give you a uh, William Shatner reading here or anything like that. <laughs> but Can we smoke cigarettes right now? Really good lyrics. And uh, oh, it's like they, they, they could exist separately from the music, I think. I, you know, I, and I don't say Thank that you. about too many bands. You know? And I've heard you say, Andrew, that the lyrics are important uh, to you. But Surely. a lot of bands say they're an afterthought. They often don't mean much. It seems like the exact opposite with you. Does it start with those words and then, and then everything falls together? Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with, with lyrics being an afterthought. Not every band has to be a lyrical band, but for me it is. For uh, the Parquet Court songwriting process, for the most part, on my end, does start with words. And wh- why is that? I mean, because, as I said, I don't think a lot of bands work that way. I think, I think maybe Dylan worked that way, but I can't think of too many bands that have worked that way. Uh, I needed a new way to write. I'd been, I hadn't been doing that before, and I needed something new to do. Mm-hmm. I read a, a great quote from you, Andrew. I think it was from you. Uh, say you, you're saying you don't want to be one of those bands about whom people say they're influenced by fiction. But yeah. you, you were strongly inspired by, by Pinch and David Foster Wallace, uh, DeLillo. What was it about that kind of writing? It's all, they're all almost elliptical writers. Yeah. Also, they, 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 I guess, break a lot of conventions. And, I don't know, a lot of the, the writers that I like kind of make up their own rules, which is, I don't know if that's... I mean, I'd like to think that's something I do. But, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily like the... I don't really necessarily like zeroing in on influences like that because then it becomes canonized and it's a thing that people say like, okay, yeah, this is the you know the literary band that's influenced by all these <laughs> postmodern writers and stuff. And I, I don't really, I kind of, I don't really like to be cornered into any of those like concrete associations. But, but sure, yeah. I, but then I, we can just listen I, to Stoned and Starving. Yeah, and we'll be like, what are you talking about, Pinchon? Sure. Yeah. So how did Stoned and Starving get rid? <laughs> I mean, you're walking well, around not New every, York. I mean, hey, not everything needs to be highbrow, you know. <laughs> Just walking around smoking some pot. Actually, I think that probably is one of the songs, I mean, that's the reason I think it, the, the album connects with people who have heard it is because you're talking about everyday lives. You're not talking about these fantastic events. You're talking about something that would happen to just about any person of sure. that you know, that age or my age or, you know, who hasn't age? been yeah. there stoned like, and starving? We've yeah. all been there, man. I'm right there now. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis. We're here with Parquet Courts. So, Austin, talk, talk a little bit about how the music comes together after you start chewing on these words a little bit. It's pretty quick. <laughs> like we were saying, I, I don't know. We, we play a lot together and we have been for years now. Uh, well, I guess at least two. And we, we like we. I mean, That's years. Yeah, yeah, and like we, we There's we, we practice like a couple times a week, every week when even when we're not playing shows. I guess we haven't done that in a while, but when we were first starting out, and we just learned to play with each other. And so when you have the the lyrics, like a story you want to tell, and then you can just it's not that hard i mean you just make you just you just play the guitars together it's also fun it's also fun when you do have words written down that you know maybe you going into writing the song you would associate the words with a certain type of music or emotion and it's 
it's kind of nice when we're jamming together and we have like a groove going and I marry it with some words that I might not, not necessarily associate with the kind of music that we're playing. So sometimes it, yeah. it makes for, it, it, it's good at, the style is good at keeping things fresh, I think. Here's that style in action. You Are No Stoner and Careers in Combat, performed by Parquet Courts live at Lincoln Hall on Sound Opinions.
That was You're No Stoner and Careers in Combat from Parquet Courts, live at Lincoln Hall on Sound Opinions. Let's go back to our conversation with band members Andrew Savage, Sean Yeaton, Austin Brown, and Max Savage. The key to the band's amazing, propulsive sound on Light Up Gold is its rhythm section, Sean and Max. Here they talk about their contributions to the album. The thing that I think is so effective about Light Up Gold is the songs are really tight, but at the same time kind of at the risk of falling apart at any moment. So from the rhythm section, right? Max, Sean, how are you so tight but so frenetic at the same time? Why are we so awesome, man? Um, I mean... <laughs> How are you so cool? I feel like my role as drummer in the band is not to show off, and if you listen to the record, there are, and as far as I remember, absolutely zero fills, and like you said, the music gets really frantic, the guitars get really chaotic. I feel like my job as a drummer is just to be the thing that sort of glues everything together and keeps it from, you know... Vi- that keeps the train from derailing, basically. <laughs> I mean, yeah, everything that Max said is correct, or I agree with. We kind of, um, we have a lot of fun working off of each other's different styles. I think that I had never played bass in a band before. I'd always been a guitar player, and I would liken the way that I play guitar very much to the way Austin and Andrew play. And so, like, just playing an instrument that requires being... Some restraint, maybe? Yeah, a little bit of, yeah, like holding back a little bit, or like being really concise and uh, calculative was uh, a a challenge for me. But Max is such an incredible drummer. He's like a machine that uh, it's really fun. (laughs) It's really fun to play with Max. And a lot of, I mean, I I love all four of us playing together is super fun, and I love doing it. But it's really fun as a bass player, which I guess I am to uh, have like a really just super steady, almost like, I don't know. It's very leathery. Yeah, we go by leather rhythm. If other bands ever hired us, that would be like, yeah. it'd be like that band on tour with leather rhythm, like a Melvin's yeah. Big Business kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. That, is that, I mean, is that just some you come up, you say do that leather rhythm thing? Yeah, I don't know where I came from. Probably like, I feel like alcohol is probably. Wow. Yeah. It's like a little code. Yeah. A little, and nobody little knows what it speed. means except you guys. Yeah. Yeah, right. No, that's their, that's their leather rhythm. They're the... They're the they're I mean, like, it makes they're they're like the crazy sense horse store Neil Young. <laughs> yeah. Leathery. Yeah, you know, leather. It's tight and worn. <laughs> well, see, I uh, think... I, now, now you're starting to... Okay, now you're... Okay, I got you. Uh, that sounds for you. Oh, I got I, I to gotta ask Max, though. Max the Machine. Uh, you were advertising for... Uh, when the album originally came out, I think, there was you were advertising drum lessons, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, Are those still available? Yeah, I guess so. I haven't 
done them in a while. Whenever like I'm in the city, I always tutor kids, and then I do that through an agency, and I just decided to like do my own thing. I posted a Craigslist ad um, for drum lessons, and the next day, this wacky lady, uh, wacky rich lady from the Upper East Side, just like hits me up, and every every time she asked a question, it was like had all these exclamation marks and question marks, and uh, so like, yeah, that, that's what got me started, and. Um, Be careful, because wacky rich people listen to NPR. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, here's Parquet Courts with their final song, North Dakota, live on Sound Opinions. That was North Dakota from Parquet Courts, live at Lincoln Hall here on Sound Opinions. To hear and watch videos of their entire set, visit us at soundopinions.org. Got a comment on this week's show or want to share your own thoughts on the new arcade fire? Call us on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Coming up, it's our review. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a song from one of the most anticipated albums of the year, Reflector, studio album number four from Montreal art rockers Arcade Fire. Greg, we've had Arcade Fire on the show as guests twice. It's been four albums over the last decade, and it's no exaggeration to say they're probably the most important indie rock band to rise from the indie ranks to mainstream attention, Uh, maybe since Nirvana right? Came together in 2003 when band leader Wynn Butler met his soon-to-be wife Regine Chassain at an art gallery. She had immigrated from Haiti, escaping the dictatorship of Papa Doc Duvalier. I mention that because that plays into this new album. Over the course of three albums, Funeral in 2004, Neon Bible in 2007, and The Suburbs in 2010, they won a devoted following for records that were big musically. This is orchestral pop, but meant for the festival crowds. And also conceptually, these were these were heavy, sophisticated ideas that they were dealing with in this music. Amazingly, in 2011, they win the Album of the Year Grammy. The Grammys never give these kind of awards to groups that are selling what Arcade Fire was selling or that are on an indie label. They're still on Merge Records from North Carolina. So a lot of anticipation for this album. In the pre-release chatter, they were talking about inspirations such as the 1959 art film Black Orpheus and the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. What are they giving us musically? Working with James Murphy of LCD Sound System, now retired, recently had him on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about this collaboration. The album is called Reflector. We're going to play a song called Here Comes the Nighttime by Arcade Fire on Sound. Opinions. Here comes the nighttime from Arcade Fire's new album, Reflector. The fourth album, Jim, it reminds me a lot of the fourth albums by uh, two significant bands that I think are are kind of blueprints for what they're doing here. Uh, Talking Heads, Remain in Light, and The Clash's Sandinista both came out in 1980. It's one of those kind of records that sounds both lighter 
and more disturbing than anything they've done. You know, they, they've got this more rhythmic, darker, weirder, artier kind of effect here. The, the sprawl of the record reminds me of that uh, Clash Sandinista record it's and the Talking Heads Remain in Light. 75 minutes over what would be two CDs if yes. you buy it that and, way. And, and they're kind of listing it as two halves of a record. Much less linear. As you mentioned, the tracks are much longer. Eight of the first 12 tracks on the record clock in at more than five minutes. The last track's 11 minutes long. I got some problems with that side two, disc two on this record. A lot slower Slower, tempos are down, songs more sprawling, but they don't seem to resolve quite as neatly as the songs on the first disc. That closing 11-minute bubble bath supersymmetry, <laughs> man, what a downer, you know? The record's pretty good up until that point, and then they bring it down with that 11-minute uh, track that just seems to just hang there. It's not the same as being alive, supersymmetry, supersymmetry. I love the way, especially in the first disc, that they uh, forefront Jeremy Gar's drums and Tim Kingsbury's bass. They've obviously rethought everything. Coming off a Grammy-winning album, rather than just repeat the formula, they've taken some huge risks here, and I really applaud them for it. I think the music on the first disc, some of the best they've ever done. The way it closes off with those tracks, Here Comes the Nighttime that we just played, Normal Person, You Already Know, that punky track, Joan of Arc, best music they've made in their career. But they diminish it with the slow lower, more unfocused second disc on this record. So as a result, I'm going to have to give it a burn it. Well, I'm with you on the burn it, Greg. I'll tell you, I've been thinking about this long and hard. There were three factors that made the Suburbs, Neon, Bible, and Funeral really spectacularly successful discs. I think that's the best music of their careers, those three albums. One is Win Butler's Way with a Melody, and that remains here. But the other two things were what they did with rhythm and what they did with lyrics. You know, rhythmically, I think it was as, as if something like the Feelies, this syncopated rhythm, merged with ACDC. You could see 30,000 people in an arena you know, grooving on these complicated rhythms, multi-layered, syncopated, but with arena rock power. I love those rhythms. Now they're replaced with rather rote and unimaginative, like Roxy Music disco era kind of grooves, with notable exceptions. When when it goes into the Haitian grooves and when it goes into a little bit of New Orleans second line music in, in an explosion here and there, those are great. But that doesn't happen a lot. The other thing is, is there's no lyrical heft here. You know, they have tackled in order existentialism... Uh, dealing with death in your life, number two, dealing with religious fanaticism, and number three, uh, dealing with living in a stifling, quote-unquote, perfect suburb. These are heavy ideas, and here, you know, Wynn is telling us, uh, yeah, I don't, don't want to be like a normal person, and I don't want to be like a normal person. He's repeating it a hundred times until you get sick of it. Um, the songs are too long. There's not as much heft as in the past. I think this is a disappointing misstep from a great band, so it's a burn it is the best I can do as well. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. You remember, we were shipwrecked together. Greg, those sounds mean that as often as possible, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island and play for you a song we cannot live without today. What have you got? 
Jim, I've been thinking about the Scottish Quartet, the Beta Band, ever since we uh, we do these movie nights here in Chicago for Sound Opinions. The last one we aired was High Fidelity, that movie with John Cusack and Jack Black, in which the Beta Band's Dry the Rain is, is the star of the movie yeah. in a lot of ways. They play that track in the, in the record store, and he says, I'm going to sell a bunch of records, and, you know, just watch. But so much of this band is associated with that one track that I think uh, much of the rest of their output is unfairly ignored. Uh, the band broke up in 2004, relatively unmourned. A lot of their work has been reissued in recent weeks, and I've been going back to all of that stuff and just loving it, particularly the compilation that's just simply called the three EPs. Compilation, imaginatively enough, of their first three EPs in the late 90s. That includes Dry the Rain, but the last track on the record is just as good, in my opinion. It it sort of gets across this idea, those folky melodies, those trippy electronic atmospherics, these kind of patchwork arrangements that always seem to be just about to break down, and then suddenly they pull all those stray threads together and build this glorious anthem out of it. And that's exactly what they do on this track. Needles in my eyes from the beta band on Sound Opinions. Last night they looked so old, I felt like smiling, smiling all night. You left me cold, you left me cold. You left me cold, you left me cold. Needles in my eyes won't cripple me tonight, alright. Twisting on my mind, please pull me through the light, Needles in My Eyes by the Beta Band, Greg Cott's Desert Island Jukebox pick for the week. Nice stuff, Greg. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, it is Thanksgiving time, and it is time for our annual turkey shoot for the most disappointing albums of the year. Greg, as always, we have some thanks to say on the way out. Special thanks this week to Goose Island, Lincoln Hall, and Adam Yaffe for our performance. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Anthony Martinez, and our intern Jake Smith. And one more piece of news on the way out. The Jonas Brothers broke up, and people are sad, but we now have three solo albums to look forward to.
sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, guys. Uh, this is Timmy Dillo from New York City. I just heard your analytical breakdown of Astro Weeks. I thought it was great. Uh, a lifelong Ben Morrison fan. Ben Morrison, I've seen him in concert a dozen times, and he's either red hot or blue cold. He is the priest of passion. If you listen to some of his albums, some of his songs, all the way through to his current, it's almost a sense of religion or meditation. It's great. Peace. You're the queen of the stiff strain. I love you so. Hi, folks. This is Peter calling from El Cerrito, California, and I want to issue a response to your Van Morrison Astral Weeks album dissection. You know, I have never understood why people thought that Van Morrison was such a genius. I've not, never understood why people connect with him on the level that they do. I've always thought he was an incredible one-note singer. And the idea that he would have been collaborating with these musicians and improvising, as you put it, to record this record, I think that's nonsense. I think what John Cale indicated is true. I think he walked in, laid down some songs with an acoustic guitar, and the band played over those recordings. It reminds me more of listening to William Shatner's Transformed Man album, where he does Shakespeare soliloquies while very clearly overdubbed orchestral music plays behind it. That's about the level that I think Astral Weeks is really at. And enterprises of great pitch and moment, with this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. I just do not understand you rock critics falling all over yourselves on that record. Don't get it. Just don't get it. <laughs> Catching pebbles For some sandy beach You're out of reach Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Mark in Chicago. I have one late edition for your murder show, which I thought was great. The song Jack Ruby, the opening track from Camper Van Beethoven on Key Lime Pie. I think it's the ultimate murder song. I mean, you guys were talking about public spectacle. Like, this was a murder that was witnessed five by millions of people. When I first bought that album, I put it on, that heart-thumping drums, those drums were just killing me right away. I knew this wasn't going to be any ordinary song. And uh, even now, that song still sends a chill down my spine. Laura calling from Chicago, and I wanted to comment about your Halloween show. The scariest thing that I heard on your Halloween show was your review of the new Pearl Jam. Jim, you said that Pearl Jam should never do ballads. Really? A live, black, yellow Leadbetter? Some of their best songs are ballads, and I just need to voice that opinion. Thanks for the show. 
No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.